You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's Tuesday, June 2nd, 2020, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington in New York, joined shortly by Ed Harrison near Washington, D.C. But first, Nick Correa with the broader context. Thanks, Ash. Today, I'll be discussing another pandemic that occurred in the past that hasn't been as widely discussed as the Spanish flu, the pandemic of 1957. The 1957 influenza pandemic, which was commonly referred to as the Asian flu, originated in the Guizhou province of China. The first cases in Guizhou were reported in late 56, early 57. This was a novel strain of the virus, its variant being H2N2, so humans did not have any previous encounters to it and therefore had minimal immunity. This virus on its own was lethal without the support of other bacterial co-invaders. It spread to other Asian countries such as Singapore, Taiwan, and India, as well as to the then British colony Hong Kong, a few months after it first started spreading in China. On April 17, 1957, the New York Times had reported that about 250,000 of the 2.5 million residents living in Hong Kong were receiving treatments for influenza. Global surveillance of influenza during this period wasn't as extensive as it is today, but three weeks after the outbreak in Hong Kong, a virus was recovered and shipped to the Walter Reed Army Institute for Research in Washington, D.C. so that scientists could study it. The virus eventually came to the United States in June 1957. It first peaked in October, affecting specifically children, pregnant women, and the elderly. The U.K. was already in the throes of the outbreak at this point, and the U.S. had experienced a second peak in January and February 1958 that disproportionately affected the elderly. Death estimates ranged anywhere between 1 million to 4 million worldwide, in the U.S., between 70,000 and 116,000 people had died, and the U.S. population was about half the size in the 50s, roughly 150 million to 180 million people, compared to what it is now, almost 330 million people. This occurred right before the recession in 1958, known as the Eisenhower Recession. This recession was brief, it lasted for eight months, and declines in income, employment, and production were moderate compared to other recessions. What's significant about this, though, was that it was the sharpest decline in the U.S. economy between 1945 and 2009, as measured by the change in real GDP on a quarter-over-quarter -quarter basis. Unemployment started climbing upward soon after the virus had peaked in the fall of 1957, topping off at 7.5% in the summer of 1958. And indices such as the S&P 500 and Dow Jones had also experienced sharp drops during this time. The S&P dropped roughly 20% between July and November 1957, and the Dow dropped 19% in the same period. Now, there doesn't appear to be any in-depth research that exists about a direct connection between the 1957 pandemic and this recessionary period. Today, during the COVID-19 pandemic, that connection is incredibly clear due to the harsh and swift nature of the worldwide response to the virus. However, there may be some correlation from the past that points to excess mortality having a noticeable impact on economic activity once excess mortality passes a certain threshold within a defined period of time. This would factor in regardless of how much activity has been restricted in the face of an event like a pandemic. And with that, I'll send it back to you, Ash. Welcome, Ed. Another difficult night in the country last night. 
It definitely was. And it is interesting that uh, markets were relatively calm again today, just as they were yesterday. Yeah, I think one might say, and this is probably what we're going to cover today, uh, it seems eerily calm relative uh, to what happened last night in the country. Uh, and I think this is worth talking about. Yeah, we can go into that a little bit more uh, later on in terms of how I'm seeing the longer term picture. But I definitely would like to hear what you're looking at in terms of things that are on our platform right now, interviews that we've done that you think are relevant to the market right now. Well, you know, I actually just did uh, earlier today a live interview with Lakshman Ashton, uh, who, of course, is uh, the co-founder of the Economic Cycle Research Institute, the ECRI. Uh, and we talked about actually this very topic. You know, Lakshman has a very sophisticated way of thinking about markets uh, from a broader economic context. He basically looks at markets uh, on the one hand uh, from the structural perspective uh, to the cyclical perspective, and then ultimately uh, examines the impact of exogenous shocks on the endogenous system that's already formed. So effectively, you have all of these very long-term trends on the structural side. You have cyclicality uh, with the business cycle, the inflation cycle, uh, and a series of other cycles throughout the economy. And then in addition to that, you have uh, a series of shocks uh, that can be the trigger for recessions, but only in, in Lakshman's view, when you have a favorable cyclical environment that is ready to sort of be tipped over the edge of the cliff. Right, yeah. And you know, it's interesting that you uh, talk to him because it's sort of an update. I spoke to him before, I think it was actually at the end of last year, and we were talking about whether or not 2020 was set up to be a good year or a bad year. And the takeaway that I got was that the numbers were looking relatively good, but the preconditions for problems were definitely there. And and he didn't rule out a recession in 2020. Obviously, he couldn't have known that we were going to have the COVID-19 crisis. But it's interesting to understand what his his update is and how he's seeing things. I mean, what is he seeing going forward for the rest of the year from an economic perspective? Uh, well, he does not see uh, any inflationary pressure. If anything, he sees deflationary pressure. Uh, and, um, you know, he's uh, he, he sees this as, a, as definitely a period of slowdown. Um, and uh, but I, again, I think that the most important thing, something that we talk about here uh, so frequently uh, is the importance of having a framework. Uh, and I think that, you know, what I just described, I think earlier is probably you could almost say a meta framework. It's a way to think about the framework itself. Uh, and it's worth viewing, I think, from that perspective alone, uh, in addition to what he has to say about the particular dynamics of, of this cycle. You know, and I was thinking about that. I have a framework that I'm looking at and I'm thinking about today to look at it. And I just, you know, piggybacking on the piece that uh, Nick presented just now with uh, Gabrielle's editorial input. There's some precedent uh, for markets moving down uh, after a pandemic as they did in uh, 1957. But the 57 move, it, was, it wasn't sustained, uh, nor was it necessarily the outgrowth of the Asian flu pandemic. Really, we had other sorts of economic factors that led to the recession that we had. And so it wasn't, you couldn't really say that it was the pandemic uh, that we had. And then, but you know, to reiterate what we were saying yesterday, there's no historical precedent for protests or riots. This is what's on our mind right now, leading to sustained downturns in shares. For example, 
1968, the market ended the year up, uh, despite the fact that protests that year were of an order of magnitude worse than they have been today. You think about the things that we were talking about, the Prague Spring, we're talking about bombings in uh, various schools, arson, things of that nature. It was just a horrific year in terms of protests, even as compared to what we're seeing today. Yeah, it's so interesting. I actually read credit write-downs this morning, and you make exactly this point. This is uh, this is sort of a, a pretty good cross-section of the 20th century, both in the U.S. and domestically. Uh, and there really seems to be very little correlation in the short term between uh, these events of civil unrest, however difficult they are at the human level, uh, and the actual performance of markets within a short time frame. So, I mean, when we're talking about the markets and how they're moving today and what's going on in terms of the current events, I think in terms of what market impact you could have from protests, riotous behavior, Hong Kong's the closest precedent that I can come up with, and that's a comparatively small economy. Uh, and, the, and the riots today are shorter or have been thus far shorter in duration and less severe economically than the ones in 1968 when the market actually ended the year up. So I don't think that we can assign that much weight to them in terms of the overall economic and market environment. What I'd like to do is return to the concept, this is actually a liquidity-driven market, and talk about what changes that, what changes it from a liquidity-driven market to a fundamentals-driven market. JP Morgan Chase, for example, they're saying that money market funds in this year already have gained $1.2 trillion in funds. Uh, while, according to Bank of America, fund managers overall are holding cash at levels uh, you know that you've rarely seen in history. So, what J.P. Morgan's saying is basically that investors are underweight equities at this point, and that there's the only real signs of overextension are confined to momentum traders, uh, and, and they have a great chart showing what they think are the under and over allocations of equities in portfolios going back 20 years. It, to me, and, and when you look at that chart, by the way, what you see is that we're underweight equities relative to where they think they should be. So to me, that speaks to liquidity continuing to support shares for the near term. It continues to show a liquidity-driven market. Yeah, um, a couple of thoughts. The, the, the JP Morgan charts are definitely worth looking at. Uh, and um, you know, it's almost like the short answer is when someone uh, asks you, I don't understand, you follow these markets, how can they be going up when we have, you know, a pandemic, uh, a recession that's significant and sharp, and also significant civil unrest, police car passing by right now, as I say, uh, civil unrest is there to accent the point. Uh, and the short answer is it's it's cash and positioning, right? It's those are the two the two factors uh, that are that are predominating uh, from that perspective. It reminds me of some of the work uh, of Hari Krishnan, who's been on this platform uh, a number of times, who's talked to specifically these points, and it's uh, it's consistent with his, uh, I guess you'd say, academic work and analysis of this. Yeah, and you know, to the degree that the data continue to surprise the upside, we were talking about upside surprises yesterday, uh, the bearishness of the market's actually gonna help in that regard. The S&P 500, for example, has the biggest net short position since 2015, according to the CFTC. So that means that uh, the market's going to rally on positive data surprises. 
the shorts are going to need to cover as a result of the data and, and so the market rallies on that. And that adds to the uplift that we've seen as the data recently, uh, it's surprised to the upside. Yeah, they can get squeezed. So, you know, for me, really, the question is, is uh, just when you talk about the framework, when does that liquidity story turn into a fundamental story? When do we go from the shift from thinking about, yes, there's cash in the sidelines, equities are underweight, people are repositioning to get more into equities, to actually, this is what the earnings of these companies are, uh, this is what the, the right fundamental level is for the market and for these individual companies. So what are your thoughts on that, Ed? Where do you think that where do you think that tipping point happens? Well, you know, uh, let me let me uh, let me back it up to the beginning of the year and how we were looking at it. Uh, and some of this is related to what Lakshman Akuthin was talking about. Uh, for me, uh, you know, here are some of the keys to thinking about it going forward. If you look at the highs in mid-February, that was largely driven by a green shoots belief, similar to the one that we're having now. Uh, Basically, what we saw is is that the worst was over in terms of the negativity that we saw in the late summer and the early fall, that malaise that caused the yield curve to invert. And so as a result, we we got to new highs. But since then, we're almost back to those exact same highs on the NASDAQ. Today, we're almost at the exact same level as we were, uh, I think it was February the 19th. We're 10% down on the S&P. And we're 17% down on the Russell 2000. Uh, that shows you that people are still going for growth over value. But uh, it's more than that because of the narrow leadership. I think we may have mentioned this before. If you know, This is something that comes from Gerard uh, Minak, who's going to talk to Rao later on. But he saw that the FANG plus Microsoft, that's um, Facebook, Apple, it's uh, Alphabet, it is uh, Amazon, it's Netflix, that if you add them with, with Microsoft, they're outperforming the rest of the S&P, uh, the, the other 494 stocks in the S&P, in much the same way that the S&P is outperforming the MSCE World Index. So that shows you that passive investment in a market cap weighted world is driving flows into the largest, the growthiest stocks and those are the ones that are doing the best right now. So that's all about liquidity. That's where we are right now. And we know that in prior down cycles, uh, the prior cyclical leaders, they weren't the first out of the gate in, in uh, on a cyclical basis. So all of that has the hallmarks of another leg down for me. So that's sort of you know the setup for me right now in terms of thinking about it. And then you can go into you know, what moves you from the liquidity story into the fundamental story? Yeah, I'm really looking forward uh, to that interview with Jared Minnick as well. He's always compelling, especially on equities. You know, I should say we didn't, uh, you know, markets relatively flat today. We didn't actually quote the numbers coming in. Uh, effectively, most uh, U.S. equity markets up around 1%. The level's uh you know, 3080 on the S&P, up 0.82% on the day, uh, close on the Dow, 25,742, up uh, just over 1%. Uh, and the NASDAQ, 9603, up 56.59%. You didn't mention Bitcoin in all of that, by the way, because people were talking about the 10,000 level. And you as a crypto guy, I'm surprised that you, you didn't get a chance to put that in there. 
<laughs> well, you know, I'm always uh, I'm always hesitant. I want to make sure I have my right hat on right now. And we're talking macro and capital markets. Look, um, I think that's going to be a huge story when it does cross. Uh, and it's getting it's getting close. Uh, it's about ninety five hundred here uh, as uh, as we roll into the post close analysis. Excellent. So, you know, here's how I'm thinking about it in terms of, let's say, over the next three to six months. So this is this is the scenario that I'm thinking about. And tell me, give me some pushback. Uh, tell me what you think about this. This is how I'm thinking that markets right now, they're they're priced for the short term. And that's due to the uncertainty beyond three months. We have no idea what's going to happen in the near future because this is a situation which is unique in history. We've never seen it before. Uh, we, we had a, a lockdown and a reopening, totally unique economic data periods in, in anyone's lifetimes. And that makes the ability to uh, look through the present data pretty uh, horrendous, even if the data is poor, even if the, the data are ho horrible, you have no idea what's going to happen two or three months from now. And so you can hang your hat on the possibility that the green shoots will come be coming down the pike. But my view is, is that when we hit September and October, the summer holiday season will be over and people will be focused. They'll be focused on the future. And by that time, we'll actually have enough data, enough reopening data, post reopening data to process what's happened. And we can start to make a long term prediction about where we're headed economically. So I think that's the time frame that we should look back to. That's what I was saying yesterday, September, October, that's the period when we're gonna have the reckoning. Not to use a, a terrible word, by the way. Yeah, no, that, that, seems, that seems plausible and it makes sense that as the data comes in and things begin to settle down, uh, that could be the case. I'll play devil's advocate here. Um, the things that concern me, you know, I was asked during the Ask Me Anything, I think we talked about this yesterday, what are the, the three, th you know, what are the things that could potentially uh, cause uh, uh, your worst case scenarios to come true? And I said, you know, three things, civil unrest, uh, a uh, resurgence of the virus and potential, uh, a potential conflict with China. You know, it, markets have effectively shrugged off rising civil unrest in the U.S. We've had, you know, the worst civil unrest uh, that we've seen uh, since uh, since 1968, since the Johnson administration, uh, and markets have effectively shoved, uh, shrugged it off. You know, my concern now would be the other two. Uh, you know, one of the things that you know you see when you when when you watch uh, when you watch the cable news networks is when you see protests that are that are large and peaceful, we all breathe a sigh of relief and go, well, this is wonderful. People are out expressing themselves uh, and uh, and uh, they're not using violence. But hey, look, I, you know, I want to put on my sort of pessimistic cap. You've got a lot of people packed very close together, uh, screaming and shouting and expressing themselves, which is a wonderful thing to do from a First Amendment perspective. But this is precisely the kind of scenario that looks like a super spreader event for a virus. That is something uh, that we just haven't priced in, we haven't thought about. Uh, it's something that may be seasonal. Uh, and uh, when we get into September and October uh, and the weather begins to turn, especially here in the Northeast where we've had so many of these problems with, uh, with large uh, protests, or I should say with civil unrest, uh, that's definitely a risk. And then, uh, you know, the conflict uh, with China, uh, another, another thing that we just have not really priced in. Markets aren't looking at that right now. And I should say, if you wanted to broaden the scope of it, there are a lot of actors out there. We may, we, we have disagreements within the United States. We're sorting these things out. Hopefully we're going to come to a better outcome, but we have actors out there, state actors, 
who do not wish the United States of America well. And if you were a strategic enemy of the United States or a strategic rival of the United States, this is the prime time to test us. Right. And so I would be concerned about what overseas actors might do. Uh, and so international conflict, also an issue. And, you know, um, I think that all of those things are downside risks, those exogenous shocks that you were talking about that Lachman puts into his model, where you look at the endogenous inputs. I Even if you look at the endogenous inputs, I have a concern that we were looking at a checkmark uh, based recovery. There was a comment, actually, in terms of explain what that is. Basically, what it is, is, is that we go from 100 percent on the GDP level to a level of, say, uh, 75 percent. And then we go up to a level of 85, 90 percent. And, and that's the snapback that we get initially. And that last 10 percent is really difficult to, to muster. And it happens over a very long period of time. That's where the check mark is. And I think that's the scenario that's not being priced in right now, even on an endogenous basis, without these exogenous shocks that you're talking about. I mean, right now, the yield curve is the steepest it's been since May 2017 from five to 30 years. That's a sign of bullishness right there. For, you know, for the S&P, we're bumping up against the 76.4% retracement level. That's the next level up in the Fibonacci series that we always talk about. So my view is that the market's overestimated the ability of companies' earnings to weather the storm. And so that means we have a reckoning in September or October. Uh, let's see how that prediction plays out. Yeah, it's a 73.96 now on the on the FIB retracement, which we both uh, watch closely. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right on the endogenous side. It's interesting. Uh, there's so many people calling this by different names. You have the check mark. Uh, Roger was talking. Roger Hursta was talking about the the terminal recovery point. Uh, you have people calling it the square root sign. You know, there are a lot of fancy ways of putting this, but the reality is that at some level, the 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 bounce uh, from the bottom is probably not going to reach back up to where we were uh, before this series of of crises started, uh, and that is definitely an endogenous risk. Lakshman was talking today. We talked a little bit about the difference between deferred versus destroyed demand. We talked about snapback effects uh, that tend to occur uh, more in the manufacturing sector because you're you know you're you're creating some sort of intermediate good or final good. When the demand uh, dramatically drops, you stop, and then it snaps back because you have to come back and get your inventory levels back up. You have to get the factory rolling again. These things do not necessarily happen. Uh, in fact, they don't happen with uh, with services. You know, the steak dinners that you and your wife missed out on because we were under lockdown. You're not going to say, "Let's go out and get uh, let's go out and get steak seven nights a week." It just doesn't work that way. Uh, we increasingly another topic we covered with Lakshman today uh, are uh, in obviously an economy that's far more dominated by services than it ever was before. Uh, those service uh, type of uh, demand. Uh, requirements or de demand uh, parameters are definitely uh, more in the destroyed than the deferred cat category. And these are all, as you say, uh, endogenous uh, issues that have nothing to do with the potential uh, exogenous shocks that could come on top. So, you know, be before we end the whole conversation, I want to uh, stress one more thing. I, this is something that you talked about, and maybe, and maybe you can explain this. I was thinking just now, as you were explaining that about the Chinese PMI numbers, right? They came out and they were above 50. So what does that really mean that they're above 50 in, in the scenario that you're talking about? If we extrapolate that to the United States or any other country, that is, we went down 25% uh, 
you know, 20% in terms of GDP, we're at the 75% level, and we move back to 90. Suddenly now, instead of our PMIs being 25, they're 50. But right. 50 from what level? And what does that mean in terms of actually what kind of numbers you need to get back to 100%? Can you talk to that? Because I think the way that you explained it yesterday, it was very good. Yeah, you know, the challenge that we have here is it's a continually declining base. These are diffusion indices, right? So if you look at uh, the ISM manufacturing index, what that number tells you is 50 is flat. Uh, anything above means growth. Anything below means contraction. So when those numbers are six, substantially negative for uh, a long period of time or for several months in a row, especially when they're very negative, uh, it represents uh, a destruction of economic activity here in the U.S. or abroad. Um, and and what you're doing is you're effectively pulling down uh, the the base uh, every time you get one of those really negative prints. So if you have uh, if you have you know 20s and 30s and 40s, uh, and then the next month it comes back uh, with a I don't know say a 55 print, which represents expansion. You're you're doing that on a substantially diminished base. It's not like a stock price when you go well you know it's it's back up to 83. Uh, no, it's not a. It's not the. It's not the total level of, of activity. It is not. Uh, it's not a stock variable. It's a. It's a flow variable, or actually, probably more specifically, it's a. It's a derivative of the flow. It's showing the the degree of change on a on a month over month basis. And we still have a long way to go. This is caused uh, these this crisis this series of crises uh, has caused substantial economic destruction in the economy uh, and some of it is going to be structural in addition to cyclical meaning they're going to be durable realignments of, of the way that that we do things and I'm, I'm not being pessimistic about this I'm obviously very bullish about the long-term future of American capitalism but it can be very very painful. Uh, to get there. I, I always say this because it's so, sort of like vaguely humorous, but you know, the reality is once I learn to cut my own hair with a clipper, I'm probably not going to go and spend uh, 30 bucks twice a month and, and two hours uh, to get my hair cut. Why, why would I? I can do it in 15 minutes myself and, uh, and it's, it's free once I've bought the clipper. It, it, you know, it's a, a slightly amusing story, but it's a metaphor for the way that people have durable changes in their tastes, in their preferences, in their patterns of consumption. And if you're a barber shop uh, that makes your living off guys like us who used to come in twice a week and now they're getting their hair cut themselves, it can be devastating to that particular business. Now, obviously, we're talking about economies in the aggregate and our economy is very dynamic and people maybe go into a different kind of business. Maybe you open a, maybe you open a coffee shop, maybe you open a restaurant instead of a barber shop. But the reality is, uh, that there's a there's a frictional or transitional period uh, when those economic uh, regimes are shifting, and it's also very difficult uh, for the people who are caught in those shifts. Yeah, so I mean that is the checkmark economy right there. You've summed it up. That's where we're headed, and what that means is you have to have 55, 56, 57 over and over again on your PMIs for an extended period of time to get you back to 100, and that's not what we're looking for. And that's why I believe that at some point, and I believe that point is probably in the fall, September and October, we are going to see people be able to stop looking through the data and start to realize that that's what the prospect is for the foreseeable future. Yeah. I think uh, that's our conversation to be continued. To be continued. Thank you again for joining us, Ed. Good to talk to you. And uh, I'm looking forward to watching you from uh, my couch tomorrow when you're talking to Roger. <laughs> Indeed. Enjoy the day off. Uh...
You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.